Awesome. Well, I have been told I have a very loud voice, so I guess I could have done it without the microphone, but then those online would have a hard time. Well, we're in the middle of a series on Malachi. Uh, just a little reminder, uh, Malachi was written 400 years before Jesus was born. It was about 100 years after the Israelites returned to Israel from exile. And unfortunately, Israel was just going through the motions with their worship. The series has been called Return to Me because of the big picture. God is calling the Israelites to return to him, to turn away from their sin, to turn away from their rebellion and to return to God. But to do that, he needs to confront their disobedience. And so what he does is he confronts the disobedience in six speeches, six discourses. In the first discourse, he began the book by saying, I love you. He told the Israelites, I have always loved you. I will always love you. I chose you from among all the different nations to be my people. And as we looked at that, we reminded, we were reminded by God's truth that God invites us to be part of his family. The second discourse, God told the Israelites that they defiled his name. They gave God their leftovers. Instead of bringing the appropriate sacrifices, they brought their lame and diseased, and, 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 and they brought their sheep that had two legs instead of the ones that had four. They brought their leftovers to God, and we talked about how God wants our best. In today's passage, God is confronting the nation of Israel and their relational selfishness. So they were living their life in compartments, and, and we can sometimes struggle to do that. We have You know, Sundays is for church, but then the rest of the week, you know, we say, okay, God, I put you in that box, in that compartment over there, and that's your time, but the rest of the week is mine. And the Israelites were doing this in their relationships with one another. They were doing it in their marriages. They were divorcing their wives to pursue other women. They were treating others in ways that didn't honor God. And so God confronts them. But we can be guilty of the same thing. We can come to church, put a smile on our face, sing nice songs, but then go home and mistreat our spouse or yell at our kids or be rude to our coworkers. We can compartmentalize our Christianity, give God Sunday, but then leave the rest for us. And so just like last week when we talked about how God doesn't want our leftovers, Today I want to remind us that God wants us to surrender every area of our life to Him, especially our relationships, whether it be friendships, your co-workers, or those most intimate relationships with our kids and our spouses. So let's pray. Dear God, thank You for the chance to open Your Word today. Lord, we all come bringing burdens and sorrows sins and failures, joys and struggles. We come here today and we open your word and we ask you to speak through it. Lord, we know your word is powerful. It's active. And so we pray for you to move through it today. In your name we pray. Amen. I was a youth pastor for about 18 years. And uh, what I found in my time is that when trying to disciple students, uh, I, it was easier to gain a lot of traction with these two types of students. One, students whose parents really lived out their faith at home. They, the kids saw it modeled each and every day. And so for them, God was real because they saw it in their homes. The second group was people that were not church kids. 
They came from homes that the, the home didn't know anything about Jesus. They came to church and, and they came to youth group and they didn't know anything about Christ. And through youth group they got saved. But they saw that the Christian life was so drastically different from what they experienced, it drew them to Jesus. That was what, what drew them in. But the third group was, was really difficult to try and disciple. And these were the students whose parents came to church every week, and yet at home, they didn't acknowledge God at all. On the outside, in church on Sunday, they looked like they were Christians, but at home, they had horrible marriages, they were rude to their kids, and on and on and on it goes. That's for those kids to identify with the Christianity of their parents and yet separate from the lifestyles of their parents was so extremely difficult. And today in Israel, what we find is that's what's going on. So the nation of Israel, the men were bringing sacrifices to the altar. And they were wondering, God, why aren't you accepting these sacrifices? And in the midst of doing that, they were treating one another horribly. They were, they were divorcing their wives and going and marry other women. There, there were all these things going on. And so we come to this passage and we come to this speech. And I want to remind you of what happens in these speeches. So all throughout Malachi, we have these speeches. They start with an accusation or declarative statement. And then there's an objection. Uh, by the nation of Israel, and then God answers. Now, this one's a little different because usually God is making the accusation, but in this speech, it's actually Malachi. Malachi is accusing his people, speaking, saying, we have done these things, and the people object, but then he's going to give God's answer. So we're going to begin in Malachi 2. If you have your Bibles, turn there with me. It will be up on the screen. Verse 10. Do we not all have one Father? Did not one God create us? That's a good place to start. Malachi's looking at all of his fellow people and saying, look, isn't God the one that created us? Don't we have one father? He points back to Deuteronomy 32 where, where it says, is this the way you pay the Lord, you foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father, your creator who made you and formed you? God identified with his people and said, I'm your father. I'm your creator. God created them and adopted them into his family. He chose them from all the nations of the earth. One of my favorite things to do as a pastor is sometimes I get to go to these adoption hearings where a family has brought someone into their home. They've chosen them and said, I want you. I love you. I want you to be my son or to be my daughter. And the beautiful thing, especially when the kids are older, the kids have to say, I want you as my parent. And then you have these hearings and the judge is there. And they declare, now is your new legal name. Now you are part of this family. Now you have been adopted. I'm your father. I'm your mother. You're my son. You're my daughter. And God is saying, look, I chose you. <laughs> of all the nations in the world, I chose you. And for us as believers, that's the truth of the Scriptures. God says, I chose you. I adopted you into my family. So Malachi says, looking at this, if God is our Father, if God created us, and he says, why do you profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? Throughout the first two discourses, God continually goes back to this covenant 
But here's what they're doing. They're profaning it. They're disregarding it. They're desecrating it. They're diminishing it. They're walking in self-indulgence. See, God made a covenant with the Israelites that he would give them a land and make them a people and give them blessing and give them an inheritance. But with those blessings came responsibilities. And they were profaning that covenant. But how? It says, by being unfaithful. Now, if we're to summarize this passage, that word unfaithful is probably the best summary. If you go to the next slide, we see it multiple times. Verse 10, you've been unfaithful to one another. Verse 11, Judah has been unfaithful. 14, you've been unfaithful to your wife. And 15 as well. And then the closing command, do not be unfaithful. God was upset with Israel because they had been unfaithful to each other. They had been unfaithful to their covenant. They had been unfaithful to their wives. And God was calling them and us to be faithful. And so in what ways were they being unfaithful? Well, that's really what the speech is about. God is going to slowly, systematically show them this is the ways that you are unfaithful. The first way is they were unfaithful to one another. This concept of loving one another started way back in the Old Testament. When we get to the New Testament, it's the essence of what it means to be a Christian, to love one another. But what was God, what was, why did Jesus summarize the law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now in the scriptures, there are over 50, almost 60 one another's that we see. Love one another, honor one another, live in harmony with one another. Be kind to one another. Bear one another's burdens. Serve one another. Submit to one another. I didn't have time this sermon to list all 50. But you get the point. Part of being a believer is to love and serve and care for others. To come alongside each other. In fact, if you're looking for something to do in the new year, a lot of times people make New Year's resolutions. They say, in 2024, I want to do this. This would be a good one. Just every week, pick pick one of the one another's. You have more than 52 to choose from. And that week, just every day, wake up and ask God to help you to live out that one another. I mean, wouldn't that make for a good year to stop being self-focused and focus on others? But really, when you think about the scriptures, Jesus said, if you want to see and know who I am, look at my people. And this is how you will know that my people are my followers. Next slide. By their love and by their unity. Jesus said for the outside world, looking and seeing who he is, they see it through our love and our unity. That is God's plan for us, but it was also God's plan for the nation of Israel. But they had been unfaithful to each other in the ways they treated each other, in the ways they cared for each other. Malachi continues in verse 11. Judah has been unfaithful. Now, Judah is just a a synonym for Israel, for the nation of Israel. They had returned to Jerusalem. That was their primary place there. So Israel has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. It's this detestable thing. Now, in the Bible, there's a number of different detestable things. And Leviticus 29 has a whole list of them. But it says, those that do these things will be cut off from their people. God saw these detestable things as really bad. So what did Israel do to earn this accusation of being unfaithful, of being detestable? Let's look. It says Judah has 
desecrated the sanctuary of the Lord by marrying women who worship a foreign god. Now, God often talks about the nation of Israel as his bride. And he often talks about their idolatry in the sense of adultery, how, how Israel is committing adultery against their God. But here, he's not talking metaphorically. He's talking literally. What has happened is the people of God were marrying foreign women who worshipped foreign gods. Now, a little aside, unfortunately, this passage has been abused uh, by people in the past, especially in America, uh, back before when slavery existed, when Jim Crow laws existed, and even till today, some people have said this is, this is teaching that there's, you shouldn't be intermarried with different races. And that is, that is not at all what this is teaching. In fact, when you look at Jesus' genealogy, there's five women in the genealogy, and three of them are foreign women. Tamar and Rahab are Canaanites, and Ruth is a Moabitess. So God has a process for God-fearing foreigners to proselytize and become believers in God. So the issue wasn't racial, it was relational. He's telling the nation of Israel, don't marry women who are worshiping false gods. Don't do it. If you do it, you're going to be someone who gets sucked into this. In Deuteronomy 7, he gives the why. Do not intermarry with them, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods, and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. Why do you not marry these women? Because they're going to turn your kids away from the Lord. We have to ask ourselves, okay, if the Israelites knew that this was forbidden, why were they doing it? Well, we have the same warning for us as believers in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 6. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Paul here is encouraging Christians not to marry unbelievers. Why? Because what do righteousness and wickedness, or light and darkness, or Christ and false gods, or a believer and unbeliever, or temple of God and idols, what do these things have in common? And the answer is nothing. The answer is God is saying, look, you, you shouldn't trade loneliness for a life of despair. So, and we'll get into that a little bit in the application of what that looks like for us as believers. But before we do that, wh- why were these Israelites doing this? Why does anybody marry someone God doesn't want you to marry? Well, a lot of times it's just selfishness. Or self-indulgence. We live in a culture that promotes us to chase after our heart. If we want something, we should pursue it. And that's been a struggle for every generation that's ever lived. And it was a struggle for the Israelites at that time. They left their wives and went out of bounds to marry foreign women out of selfishness. Maybe it's out of beauty. We know that uh, later it talks about leaving the wives of your youth. So as the wives got older, they wanted to upgrade to a newer model, so to speak. It's not a good th- way to think about David and Bathsheba, that was the same thing. He saw this beautiful woman, he said, I want her. And that can be a temptation. Third, financial security. Now, this one isn't necessarily as common in our day, but you have to remember, they just returned from exile. They may not have retained their land or their properties or their livestock. They essentially started from scratch. And one of the best ways to jump up on the economic ladder, well, let's go marry a rich girl. The foreigners had, had, had dwelled in Israel and they had now established themselves and maybe they had land and maybe they had all this stuff. And so 
the historians say one of the reasons that Israelites did this was for social status or for riches. Now, there's other potential reasons. The commentaries talk all about those different things. But what was happening is their actions were desecrating the sanctuary and led to rejection from God. Verse 12, as for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. Again, the tents of Jacob is just another way to say the same thing. Israel. God, Malachi is saying, God, would you excommunicate these people? That's strong language. Why? Verse 13. Another thing you do, you flood the altars with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks on favor on your offering and accepts them as pleasure from your hands. I love the imagery of Malachi. These men were coming and they were offering sacrifices and they were going, God, why don't you accept my sacrifice? Why are you cutting me off? Now, here's what's interesting. The Old Testament isn't the only place that says God will cut us off if we mistreat our wives. 1 Peter 3, husbands are called to live in our wives in an understanding way to show her honor. Why? So that your prayers will not be hindered. Do you realize that, men? If you mistreat your wife, if you dishonor her, if you abuse her, God won't hear your prayers. God will turn his head away from your prayers because he calls you to love your wife in the same way as Christ loved the church, sacrificing yourself for her, serving her. And so God is so offended when we come to him with our prayers while we are are mistreating our wives. So if you feel like your prayers aren't being answered, maybe the first thing you need to do is examine how you're treating your wife. Back to the text. You ask why? Why? Much like the last two sermons, the Israelites are, are missing the point. They're, not re- they're saying, God, why are you doing this? They're, not, they're so blinded by their sin that they're not seeing what God is calling them to do. And he says, it is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Why was God so offended? Because he was a witness at the wedding. He was there when they got married. When they sang the blessings over the marriage as a group. He was there. And what's happening is these men are divorcing their wives of their youth. And they're instead turning and going to these foreign women. And God's saying, this is not right. I was studying a a theologian, uh, T.V. Moore. And actually, it was a really good excuse when I was in uh, when I was in high school, and I didn't want to do my homework. I'd be I'm studying TV more. <laughs> Anyways, that's an aside. But he had a really good thing to say about marriage. I love TV more summarizes what's going on here. Uh, the woman whom you have wronged was the companion of those earlier and brighter days of your life, when in the bloom of her young beauty, she left her father's house and shared in your early struggles, and she rejoiced in your later success who walked arm in arm with you along the pilgrimage of your life, cheering you in its trials by her gentle ministry. And now when the bloom of her youth is faded and the friends of her youth is gone, when her father and mother whom she left left for you are now in the grade, then you cruelly cast her off as a worn out and worthless thing and insult her holiest affections by putting an idolater and a heathen in her 
place. See, what is going on here is sad. God is lamenting. These men, men were the only people that could divorce at that time. They were the ones who could write and issue a certificate of divorce. They were back in Israel. They're looking at their wife and they're saying, no, you're not good enough anymore. And they're going and marrying younger, maybe more beautiful, more rich, whatever, foreign women to replace the wives of their youth. And God said, this is wrong. And we come to verse 15, and we come, honestly, to the most difficult (laughs) translation I've come across in my six years of trying to figure out exactly what it says. And you'll find it as you read your different translations. They all say something different. That's not normal. Usually when you're reading uh, a scripture and you read the different translations, they all say pretty much the same thing, uh, but with different words. Because the Hebrew here is, is really complex and hard. In fact, when I was reading it, I was, I was listening to a sermon from John Piper this week, and he said, uh, I don't want to get, nobody really knows how to interpret this, so we're just going to skip it. I've never heard John Piper skip anything in my entire life. But anyways, we're not going to skip it, uh, but we're just going to go over 15, get, kind of give you a big picture, and then we're going to dive in a little bit in the weeds of verse 16. So verse 15, uh, has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. And so in the beginning of the sermon, we looked at God, the creator, and God asked the question, you know, has not the one God made you? He has. Therefore, you belong to him in spirit and truth. And what does the one God seek? Well, among other things, a godly offering. As I said in the beginning, kid grows up, godly offspring, sorry. If the kid grows up in a home where the parents acknowledge God with their lips, but then don't live out their faith, it's hard to raise godly offspring. Now imagine being a Jewish son. You have a dad and a mom, and you're brought to the temple to sacrifice every week. One day, your dad sends off your mom now, on that day, women did not have really a way to earn money. There was no economic plan for women. They were basically casting off their wives to be destitute. And then your dad takes this other foreign woman who worships false gods and still goes to the temple and still makes sacrifices and still claims to be a follower of Yahweh. And you're... As a son, how do, you, how do you process that? Would that cause doubt in your faith? Would that cause you to question if Yahweh was good? If Yahweh truly had a plan for the nation of Israel? And it did. And this is part of what was going on. So he says, so be on guard. And do not be unfaithful to your wife. Now, this next verse might be the most well-known verse in Malachi. Malachi doesn't have a lot of known verses. But a lot of people will point back to Malachi and they'll say, God hates divorce. People know that verse. God hates divorce. But again, this English translation is really difficult. The question has to do with who is doing the hating. Uh, There's a he there and it's trying to figure, is the he referring to God? Is the he referring to the man? Who is it referring to? Now, when I study for my sermons, I typically read five translations. Uh, I go through them. So I, I, I preach from the NIV 
I read the King James, the New King James, the ESV, and the NASB. That's what I do in my study. And sometimes I throw in the HCSB for good measure. And so I did that today. And the NIV, the ESV, and the HCSB all translate it as the man who is doing the hating. The King James, New King James, and the NASB translate as God who's doing the hating. So let's look at the two different translations. We'll just look at two examples. So the first example from the New King James. For the Lord, the God of Israel, says that he hates divorce. For it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So here, the he that's saying divorce is the Lord. And so in that interpretation, they're saying, okay, so God is the one that is hating divorce. And that's why it covers one's garment with violence. Now look at the NIV. It says, the man who hates and divorces his wife says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So here, what's going on is the man is hating and divorcing his wife and doing that to the one he should protect. Now, either way, God still hates what's going on. Um, Husbands, we're called to be protectors, to love our wives, to serve our wives, to protect our wives, to provide for our wives. And at this time, in the nation of Israel, the women who didn't have a means of income were being divorced and set off as destitute. And so God wants to protect the women of Israel. And so God hates what's going on. And he, he hates what's happening to these women. And he hates what's happening to the nation of Israel. But you may be sitting there and going, okay, Phil, what, what, what difference does it make? Well, I think in one sense, either way you translate, it's clear that God hates what's happening in all this. But I also know that God hates divorce has been a clobber passage that people have used. And there have been times where someone who's going through divorce and people just come in with that passage with no empathy for what's going on. I think that God does hate what happens in a divorce. He hates the breaking of the covenant. He hates the emotional trauma it causes the spouses and the kids and the grandkids. He hates the effect it has on friendships. God's design for marriage is one man, one woman for one life. But as people go through this, this might be the most difficult thing anyone goes through in their life. I've talked to friends who have been divorced for 20 years and when it's brought up, they still cry because it's so hard to walk through. You may lose friendships, may lose family, may lose community, may lose daily rhythms, may lose security. Divorce brings great loss to everyone involved. God is someone who cares deeply for us, so it mourns his heart. And there are times in the scriptures that divorce is not a sin. In the case of adultery, in the case of abandonment. I believe in the case of abuse, a form of abandonment. And I've unfortunately at times in the past had to advise someone to say the best course of action is divorce. And it was heartbreaking for me to say that. Heartbreaking. And I've sat with teenagers the day their parents told them so confused so worried and the problem when we use passages like this as clobber passages is sometimes we lose opportunities to tell people about the good news 
that Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Sometimes divorce can be the thing that brings the most burdens and the most weariness. And Jesus still invites them and says, come to me. So if you're here today and you're wounded and you're carrying burdens from your past, know that the grace of Jesus that is available to each and every one of us is available to you. That Jesus wants to meet you in the midst of the mess. That he cares about you. I mean, part of why he's so strong in his response in Malachi is because he is caring for these women that have been left by their husbands. Their lives are ruined. And God says, this is not right. This is wrong. So he says, be on guard and do not be faithful. Be on guard and do not be unfaithful. Marriage is one of the hardest things you'll ever do. On August 10th, 1998, I stood in front of a couple hundred of my closest friends, family members, church members, and I said in front of all of them, you know, in sickness and in health, in richness or in non-richness. We, we used to say when we were younger, we used to say for poor or for poor because we were, for years, we, we'd never experienced, we're like, that's, that's where our commitment is. You know, said for richness or for poor, for poor or for poor. And those first four years, sometimes the only thing we had to hang on to was that covenant. It was a wreck. It was a wreck those first four years. And so we hung on to that covenant and trusted that God had something. And God did. And God then restored our marriage, brought health to it, restored joy, restored friendship, restored fun. I couldn't look back at those first four years and describe it as fun. But God did a miracle. And time and time again, as I've done marital counseling, I've seen God do miracles. So we need to be on guard. We need to say, God, if I'm a believer and I'm committing to this thing, I'm committing for life. Good times, bad times, hard times, fun times. I'm committing for life. Now, during this series, one of the things we've tried to help you understand is the situation facing Israel. But then what we need to do is then pull it into our context. And the big picture of this passage is that Israel is being unfaithful, unfaithful in their relationships with each other, unfaithful in their marriages, and God was calling them to be faithful. So I want to see one big idea to bring all this together, one big idea. God cares about us, and God cares about our relationships. God cares about us. And God cares about our relationships. In fact, the greatest commandment is all about that. Love God, love others. God cares about us, and He cares about our relationships. So I just want to close by looking at just six brief things. I know see six, that's a lot. But just six brief things about how God cares. First, God cares about who you date and who you marry. I know singleness can be hard, and it can be easy to become impatient and want to lower our standards for for dating, uh, sometimes I've watched Christians trade loneliness now for a deeper loneliness later. They've sacrificed now to try and find someone that they feel like they're compatible to. And then years later, they deeply regret it. I sat across the table from people who have been married to unbelievers for 30 years, and they just mourn. Coming to church every Sunday by themselves, trying to raise their kids 
to love God when their spouse didn't love God at all. Yes, it's possible you may lead a significant other to Christ, the whole idea of missionary dating, but it's more likely that they're going to lead you away from Christ. That's what happened with the Israelites. That's why God commanded them, don't marry people who worship false gods because what's going to happen is that is going to affect you. You might say, I want to affect them, but that that is going to affect you. And even if those people, even if those spouses or or fiancés or people we're dating don't lead us away from Christ, your faith differences will bring you much sorrow, not only in the short term, but as you get kids, grandkids, great-grandkids. And what is God's desire for your marriage? A godly offspring. That's what he said earlier godly offspring and the best way to have a godly offspring is to have a husband and wife that love the lord and are working together to see his plans accomplished two god doesn't only care about who you marry god cares about marriage god created marriage god defined marriage so it doesn't matter how our government or how our society defines marriage. God is the one who created it and the one who has the ability to define it. The only true marriage is how he has defined it. I found this definition of marriage from an Anglican prayer book, and I love it. Here we go. Marriage, I think it's on there. Maybe I didn't put it on there. Is there a quote next? No, I did not put it on there. All right, you're going to have to listen. We're going to old school before the time they had PowerPoint where you just listen and picture the words in your head. Okay. <laughs> Marriage was instituted so that a man and woman, there's God's design, might serve God together. That's what God's purpose is in marriage, serve God together through an exclusive, lifelong commitment. There's about the two becoming one flesh which is the proper context for expressing sexual intimacy and affection. Again, two becoming one. It was instituted so that children might be born and nurtured in a secure and loving environment for their well-being and instruction and for the good in order of society. So again, there's the idea of godly offspring. And it was instituted for the mutual companionship, help, comfort, help and comfort of the husband and wife so they fulfill their responsibilities in marriage, both in prosperity and in adversity. In other words, what he's saying is God created marriage with a purpose. He defined it and he he gave it a meaning. So God cares about marriage. But one important but related note from this is that God cares about women. It's not to say that God doesn't care about men. But again, in ancient Israel, only the men could file for divorce. And as we've mentioned earlier, if you don't treat your wives with honor and understanding, your prayers will be hindered. As we do premarital counseling, I think in our culture, our culture is, is really worried about the way Christians talk about marriage. You know, husbands love your wives, wives respect or submit to your husbands, and, and they say, oh, that's, that's danger. In fact, uh, when I was going to get married, we, we had a, um, a gift thing where they all come and shower. Okay. Uh, sorry. I'm thrown off this morning. So we had a shower, right? And uh, my sister decided to give uh, a talk at the shower. And uh, so Sandy's whole family came. And my sister gave the, the wife side of what it means to be a, a godly wife without the counter picture of the husband. 
And my wife's family freaked out. They're not believers. They freaked out. They thought I was going to be like this jerk that just walked around and was like, go make me a sandwich. And like just, just walked around yelling things at my wife. So when we got to my wedding, I told my, I told my youth pastor, emphasize what God tells husbands. Because Sandy's family needs to hear this. Because when the picture is shown together, it's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture. And so my youth pastor got up and taught on what the Bible says. The Bible says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, laying their life down, laying his life down for it. Men, look at me. What did Jesus do? He came as a servant. He gave up his position of power and authority. He loved sacrificially. And ultimately, he chose to willingly die on our behalf so that we could have life. He laid down his own life for us. Men, that is how we're called to love and lead. Continual sacrifice, continual service, continual love. And when you see that picture, it makes sense as to why God was so offended by the nation of Israel. Instead of sacrificially loving their wives, they were casting them off and saying, my needs are way more important than yours. My wants are more important than yours. My wants and needs are more important than our kids. God cares about women. But also, God cares about divorce. Divorce is not God's intention or His plan. Jesus said they only allowed divorce because of the hardness of our heart. So as Christians, we should do everything in our power to fight for our marriages. If your marriage is hard, don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give up. There's help. We have counseling, places that we refer to. In your bulletin, there's a, a flyer to Weekend to Remember, a great, a great place to go for a weekend and get skills to help you in your marriage. Uh, also, couples retreat, you know, at Lake Ann, another place where you get good skills to work on your marriage. We have a place here in Greenville called Hope Restored. It's a marriage-intensive uh, retreat for, for a whole week where you work with counselors. And, and we are willing to help you get there financially. We're willing to, to do whatever it takes to help your marriage work. One of the people in our church, a couple, God has done a miracle in their marriage. And they are thriving now, partly through Hope Restored, but partly because they just both got serious said, we need to love God and we need to love each other. See, God does amazing things when we give over our lives to Him. But also as Christians, even though we know that, that, that God, divorce is not God's plan, when we encounter those going through divorce, may we have empathy. May we come alongside them and show them the grace of our Lord. There may be times where we may need to lovingly confront someone's selfishness, but we need to ask the Spirit to guide us in those situations and give us wisdom to know what our friend or our family member needs in that moment. Fifth, God cares about how you treat others. Malachi's first accusation against Israel was that they had profaned God's covenant by how they treated others. We talked about the 51 another's in the Bible, that God will be known by our love and our unity. God cares about how we treat others. And lastly, just when I end with this, God cares about you. I don't know where you're at today. Maybe you're single and you're lamenting that you 
haven't been able to find a godly spouse. Maybe you're married and your marriage is a wreck. And you've even been contemplating. Maybe you've even been talking about divorce. Maybe you're here today and you've been divorced. And that divorce is so heavy on your heart. And it just weighs you down so much. Or maybe you're here today and really none of those relational things have to do with anything. But you've been struggling with relationships with your family or friends or your coworkers. God began the book of Malachi by saying, return to me. Or by, sorry, by saying, I love you. I love you. I've always loved you. I will always love you. And then he's going to go and say, return to me. He's calling the nation back to put their faith and trust in him. So no matter what you have done or where you are, God cares enough about you that he sent his son to willingly, as we just mentioned, surrender his power and authority and die on our behalf, to die to pay the penalty for our sins that we couldn't pay. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And Jesus made that invitation, come to me all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. So if you're here today and you don't know that Jesus, come to him. Or if you're here today and you're carrying a heavy burden and you've just been carrying it for a long time and you've been putting that shame and that guilt and all that stuff on yourself, give that to Jesus. Find freedom and grace at the cross. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your love and your goodness. Lord, I know there are many in this room that are carrying heavy burdens. Maybe for them it's a friend or a family member that's, that's going through these relational struggles with their spouse and they, they don't know how to respond. Do they confront? Do they love? Do they, do they, do they affirm? What do they do? And, and I just pray you give wisdom in all the situations. Help us to walk with grace and truth. To, to love people in the midst of what they're going through, but to speak truth. But also, Lord, help us not to clobber people. Help us to be empathetic. Help us to hear. Help us to listen. Lord, give us wisdom as we seek to be people that love one another well. And Lord, if there are any marriages in here that are, are struggling, Lord, I pray that today will be the catalyst where they'll make a decision to say, today we're going to do something whether it's go to Weekend to Remember or go to Hope Restored or get counseling. Today we're going to do something. We're not going to wait. We're not going to let it deteriorate. We're not going to sit idly by as our marriage falls apart. We're going to fight for our marriage. Lord, I pray that you give them the strength to do that. Lord, if there's anyone who doesn't know you, don't let them leave today without putting their faith and trust in you. Salvation is found in Christ alone through faith. Lord, help them to put their faith in you. Believe that you died on the cross for their sins. You paid the penalty for them, and you're offering them eternal life if they put their faith and trust in you. Lord, in your name we pray. Amen.